Well, we invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. And as our children are heading out, I'd invite you to open to Luke chapter 20 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 20. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke chapter 20 on page 1041. Page 1041, Luke chapter 20. As we get into Luke now in chapter 20, it's really starting to heat up. Here's Jesus during Holy Week. He's in Jerusalem. And now the, the battle is joined, so to speak. And Jesus is now right in the lion's den with the, the religious leaders. And so there's a conflict ensuing between the two. So let me read the story. It's Luke chapter 20. Verses 1 to 19. I'll read it and then we'll dig in. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he'll ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. I enjoy uh, looking at artistic depictions of Jesus. I find it fascinating, whether it's in a movie or a painting or a sculpture. And it's fascinating, of course, because we don't actually know what Jesus looked like. We really have no clue. Uh, The apostles didn't leave a description in their writings. We don't have any sketches of Jesus. Even the earliest Christian art that we have, the you know little pictures in the catacombs in Rome, have very stylized or symbolic pictures of Jesus. It's not like there's a 
portrait of what he looks like. So, uh, you know, when you see these kind of modern depictions of Jesus, he's always, I don't know, about 6'1", right? And he has shoulder-length, dark, you know, wonderful hair and a, a full beard, blue eyes, right? And there's this Jesus. And, and, you know, maybe he looked like that, but he could have also been short, stocky, and bald. I mean, really, we don't know what he looked like. Um, but so, so when people make these pictures of Jesus, it, I think it's fascinating because I think it tells us more in some ways about the, the artist's view of Jesus than it really does about who Jesus was himself. So it's interesting to see that viewpoint. And a lot of the pictures you see of Jesus that are done today often show him very serene. He's very spiritual and otherworldly almost. Have you seen this one? This is one I think of this portrait of sort of his face. And he's, he's looking off to the side, looking up to heaven, right? And, and the light's kind of shining on him. And he's just looking away, very spiritual and otherworldly. Or, or another one that I love of Jesus is kind of in the same vein is the one you find in all your children's Bibles. It's, uh, there's Jesus. He's got the white robe. And he's got a blue sash. I don't know why. It's always a white robe and a blue sash. In one hand, he has a shepherd's crook. And in the other hand, he's holding what? A little lamb, a little sheep, right? I call this the Jesus the lamb hugger, right? Here's Jesus the lamb. He's got his little lamb. And he is the good shepherd, and it's a kid's book. I mean, my, I think it's a good thing for a kid's book to have him there, gentle. But, and, and, and so it's kind of Jesus as the lover of our souls, the good shepherd. And I think that that's an interesting picture because it probably resonates with what uh, most people today, would, how they would view Jesus. If you went and asked the person on the street, what did Jesus teach? What was his central message? You know, what would most people say? I, I, don't, I haven't done this, but what do you think they'd say? I think they'd say love. I think Jesus' basic message was love. You know, he was the lamb hunger. In fact, it, it gets thrown in our faces sometimes as Christians. Uh, if, if you're a Christian and you're having a discussion maybe about social issues and you, you take a certain stand on morality and, or something like that, and, you know, maybe the issue is about, you know, same-sex marriage and you're talking about it in the office place and you say, well, I, you know, I have some issues with that. Uh, you know, that'll often get thrown in your face. Well, you're a Christian and Jesus taught love and you're, you believe in hate and discrimination. So how can that be? And so we get hit with that sometimes about Jesus' love. Did Jesus teach love? Of course. Yes. In fact, Jesus is love. In fact, I would go so far to say that a person can never really know what love is until they embrace Jesus. I've never really known love until I've known Jesus. So, yeah, Jesus is love. But there's another side to Jesus. He's also Lord. He's love, yes, and He's Lord. He's he's merciful, but He's also the holy, righteous Lord. And that's the other side of Jesus that may not come out in the lamb-hugging picture. And and that's the picture, though, that we see in this text. So this is a different side of Jesus. It's the side of Him exerting His authority. And really what this story that we're about to study is all about, is it's a power struggle. It's a power struggle between Jesus and the religious leaders. And, I mean, this is... This is not a gentle, serene story. It's, it's kind of rough and tumble. So let's just jump right into it. First one says, One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? So that's what this whole text is about. It's about power and authority Who's really the Lord? And now remember what's led up to this text. you remember? This is Holy Week. 
So Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey like the conquering king. And then uh, he's entered the temple and what did he do? He cleaned it. He knocked over tables. He drove out the money changers, drove all the animals out, just this whole scene of uh, pandemonium. It's like, Jesus, you know, that wasn't very sensitive of you. I mean, you know, didn't you... You should respect the traditions of others, Jesus. You shouldn't just come into the temple and assert what you think. You should learn from them first, right? No, 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 no. This is not a PC Jesus. He's knocking over tables. He's driving out the sellers. He's teaching the people. And so he's come in like a king and he's cleaned house like a priest and now he teaches like a prophet. And so they say, who said you could do this, Jesus? This is the other side of Jesus. And so it's interesting, Jesus responds with a question. Verse 3, I love it. He's a master teacher, never to be outdone. He replies in verse 3, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? So you remember the story of John the Baptist. We studied that like... You know, ten years ago when we were studying Luke chapter 3 and 4. But John the Baptist was baptizing people, getting them ready for the kingdom of God. And, and then when Jesus came along, he essentially pointed to Jesus and said, this is the guy. So Jesus' story and John the Baptist's story are very closely united. And, and the people loved John the Baptist. They really believed he was a prophet. So Jesus, he throws them a curveball. He says, so let me ask you a question. Do you think John's baptism was from heaven? Or was it something that John kind of just came up with because he had delusions of grandeur? Was it from men? And this is a tough spot. Look how they respond in verse 5. They discussed it among themselves. They said, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? And, you know, therefore, why didn't you believe what he had to say about me? If we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And by the way, if I could just digress for a minute. Uh, asking a... Re- a question in response is a great way to deal with somebody who's coming at you aggressively about your faith. If you ever find yourself kind of cornered and someone's coming at you and hitting you and attacking you for your faith, just don't get defensive. Just ask questions back. And, and that's not the point of this text. This text isn't a primer on how to do evangelism and apologetics. But, it's, but it's, I think it's an interesting observation. I mean, we should just ask more questions in general. I should just spend more time listening and less time talking in general. And it's amazing what I'd probably learn about people and things. But, you know, just ask questions. So if someone comes at you and says, you know, the the kinds of things people say, like, you Christians think you're the only way, you think you have the only right religion, but if you look at all the world religions, they basically teach the same things. You know, why do you think you have the only way? You know, just ask a question. And say, "Well, well, which religions do you mean? Well, you know, Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. And, well, when you studied those religions yourself, uh, what, what were the doctrines or beliefs that you found to be identical in each of those religions? Well, uh, well they all believe in God. Well, you know, well, Islam believes in one God and Hinduism believes in literally tens of thousands of gods. And Buddha was kind of agnostic, if not atheistic, about the existence of God. So, you know, what is it? And, you know, just ask questions. And I think you'll, you'll be amazed what you find. Or someone says, look, you Christians, you, you go by faith. I can't do that. I'm based on fact. I'm scientific. You have your blind faith and I have my facts. And so I can't believe in God. And so just ask a question. Say, well, what facts do you mean? Which are the scientific facts that convince you that there can be no God? Well, I, I don't know, the fact of evolution. Oh, well, I, I thought that was a theory. No, no, it's a fact. Science, have, science has approved it. Well, what are some of the scientific proofs that have really convinced you about the reality of evolution? Oh, you know, pretty, you know, you get to the bottom of it. 
you know, unless you're talking to a, a molecular biologist, you get to the bottom of it really fast. And, and you'll be like, well, the fossils, the fossils prove it. Well, that's one of the big problems with evolution is there aren't any fossils. <laughs> I mean, there's a few here and there, but there should be all these transitional species and paleontologists haven't found them, much to Darwin's, uh, contrary to his predictions. But anyway, you know, ask questions. Or someone says, you know, I had this boss and uh, he called himself a Christian, but I'll tell you, during the week, this guy drove us so hard. He was crooked in his business dealings. He, he was, you know, he, he drank a lot. And I mean, this guy was nasty and he played dirty. But on Sunday, he was there in church. And so, you know, I, I can't stand Christians. They're hypocrites. Just ask a question. So you're saying all Christians are like that? Well, I mean, not, not all of them, just most of them. So what research are, are, are you basing it on that most of them are like that? How many of you surveyed? Well, I mean, do you think I'm like that? Oh, no, not you. You know, just ask questions. And what you'll find when you ask questions of people, this is what I find, is, is that you find that the objections to Christ usually have multiple layers to them. You'll find, because people are complex. We're, people aren't simple. Nothing simple. People are, are multi-layered. And, you know, at the top layer are the intellectual objections, the rational ones. Those are the ones you usually get hit with. You know, prove it to me kinds of objections to the Christian faith. And, and, and those are, you know, you can deal with those. I'm telling you, you don't have to turn your brain off to follow Jesus. In fact, I would even argue that it's only until I come to Christ that my brain was fully turned on. But anyway, that's, that's another sermon too. But, you know, you don't have to turn off your mind. There are good reasons for believing in Christ. There's a reasonable faith. You don't have to have blind faith. There's reasonable faith. But underneath those rational objections, I find that when I probe a little deeper, there's often an emotional or experiential objection. And typically, somebody has had some really lousy experience with somebody in religion or who calls themselves a Christian. And maybe we've all had those kinds of experiences. Maybe it was a parent who um, just shoved religion down their throat and they're like, I'm done with this. Or maybe it was, you know, that boss who was really a hypocrite and didn't live out what he believed. And, and so there's that level. But then if you even probe deeper, underneath it all, beneath the intellect and the emotions, there's the issue of the will and the heart. And this is where we are all the same. Because underneath it all, <clears throat> we don't want to surrender to the lordship of anyone, let alone Jesus. That's really the issue. We're resisting that. Isn't that what's going on here in the text? Verse 7. How do they, how do they answer Jesus? Verse 7. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. That's a lie. They had an opinion. Why didn't they just speak their minds and say, well, we think it was from men. But they don't. They lie. Why do they lie? Because this is not about finding the truth. This is about a power struggle. Jesus has come into their temple. He's claimed lordship over it. This is the other side of Jesus. And they don't like Him claiming authority over their temple. And so they're using all this you know, maneuvering and arguing and they'll even you know, do all this, well, we don't know, and whatever. Just because they're just trying to get rid of Jesus. That's all. They just want Him out. And that was, you know, that's where I was when I was first struggling with the whole Christianity thing. I was 12 years old. But it doesn't matter how old you are. Nobody wants the lordship of God in their lives. That's what the Bible calls sin. It's that impulse to reject God's right to be God in our lives. And so we want to break His laws. We want to do what we want to do. We're just selfish by nature. I was giving my kids a bath last night, getting them ready for bed. 
And uh, they had a bathtub full of toys. They got rubber duckies galore and little, I mean, there's so, so much stuff in there. It looks like, I don't know, all this floating debris and all these toys. And, and all these things they could play with. But there's only one plastic red cup that I'm using to, you know, rinse them off. And, of course, they want the cup. And whoever has the cup, the other one's flipping out and mad. I want the cup! He's not sharing! And so it's like, you know, I guess I could have gone and gotten them more cups, but, you know, I wanted to be in control too. So we're all fighting for control. It's so fascinating. Maybe your experience is different. I never had to teach my kids how to lie. I never had to teach my kids how to be rude. I never had to teach my kids how to be selfish. I never had to teach my kids how to punch. I never had to teach my kids. I didn't. It's innate. I have to teach them how to be polite. I have to teach them how to share. They, you know, if you don't believe in original sin, it just means you've never hung out with kids. I mean, <laughs> easiest doctrine to prove in the world. Original sin. Look at kids. Go to the nursery right now. You'll see it in action. Um, so it's that innate impulse we have. I don't want anyone to take my cup. I don't want anyone to mess with my life. That's what's going on here. And, and if you just get, dig deep enough, you'll find that that's really what keeps us from God, from surrendering to Him. We want to be God. Unfortunately, the position is filled. Uh, let me ask you, honestly, honestly, what is it? that's keeping you from Jesus. What is it? Is it really intellectual questions? Great! Call me up. I want to have coffee with you this week. I want to give you some books. Let's talk. I, I love the intellectual stuff. That's great. You know, call up Phil. Phil studies apologetics all the time. He's coming to me with arguments and things. You know, call Rich. Call Seth. We would love to have lunch with you to talk you know, uh, intellectual stuff. But is that really the issue? You know, if you look deeper, isn't your issue the same as what my issue was and still continues to be as I struggle in my Christian faith? Is that I don't want to give up control of my life to the other side of Jesus, His Lordship. So Jesus exposes these guys for who they are. He exposes them for their, uh, their hypocrisy. He now puts on display that these guys really aren't about truth. They're about control. Um, it's, not, it's about the lordship of Jesus versus the lordship of these guys over the temple. Same in my life. The issue is the lordship of Jesus versus the lordship of Jeremy, who's going to control the little fiefdom of my life. <clears throat> and so after exposing it, he goes on in verses 9 to, uh, and following to tell this parable. And what the parable does is it takes it a step further. He now, not only has exposed these guys, he now wants to show the consequences. This is a warning. And again, as we're going to read this story, imagine the lamb hugger telling this story. It doesn't fit. <laughs> this is not a lamb hugger story. This is Jesus kicking over the table. Well, he actually kicks me. The kicking over the table story. And, uh, all right, so let me just read the story. Verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third. They wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. 
But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So here's this little story. Uh, and, and this is this, about this guy. He rents a vineyard, right? He has a vineyard. He rents it out. Harvest time comes. Sends his servants. They all get bounced. They don't get the, the harvest that the master deserves. He says, I'm going to send his son. They see the son coming. They say, here comes the heir. If we kill him, we get the inheritance. Now, by the way, how does that work? How does killing the son give them the inheritance? That was, I, I struggle with that. Finally, I, I think I understand it. The inheritance is the vineyard. So I guess the idea is if we can kill the son, maybe the owner will just give up and say, well, forget it, they can have it. And, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law and all that stuff. So maybe that was the idea. If we just fight long enough and he won't get rid of us, then we have the inheritance, we have the vineyard. So anyway, uh, there's this story. And, and finally, they, they kill the son as well. Now you probably understand this. It's a pretty simple parable. You probably got it all in your mind what all the things represent. But just for the sake of clarity, I like to do this with parables. I just like to point out the points of contact between the parable and the real world. So uh, the first is this. Who is the owner of the vineyard represent? That's God. God's the owner of the vineyard. And who are the nasty tenants who resist the owner? This, the, the, the guys in the, uh, the story, the leaders, the teachers of the law, the, uh, the elders, the chief priests, right? In fact, we know that for certain because if you look down at verse 19, it says the teachers of the law and the chief priests look for a way to arrest him immediately. Why? Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they're the guys who are resisting. And really the vineyard is probably Israel because uh, the people of God. In the Old Testament, that was a common image for the people of God. And who are the servants who come? Probably the prophets. So really this parable is about the whole history of Israel in some ways. It's kind of a parable about the story of the Old Testament. There are these leaders who come along, and every once in a while you get a good one like King David, but for the most part you get all these leaders all these kings who lead Israel into idolatry. And so God keeps sending servant after servant, prophet after prophet. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They just keep coming, coming, coming. And they just keep throwing them out. Rejecting, resisting, not listening. Uh, we, we don't know this from the Bible, but Jewish tradition is that Isaiah was sawed in half. And Jeremiah was thrown into a pit. I mean, this is, you know, this is rough. And so finally, God says, all right, I'm going to stop sending prophets. I'm going to send my own Son, Jesus, the Son of God, the unique Savior, not just another prophet, but God's Himself in human flesh. God, the Son, in human form, comes down. And now we have the prophecy. They're going to throw Him out of the vineyard and kill Him as well. And so Jesus is looking ahead and seeing that in a few days in Holy Week, they're going to crucify him and outside of the city. Although you probably didn't have to be a prophet to figure that one out. Because going the way Jesus was going, I mean, anyone could have probably said, he's going to get himself killed. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. Uh, but that's not the end of the story, praise God. So, that, that's the story. And what I like about the story is, what I think is so interesting is, again, Jesus is just a master debater. He flips, he flips the story so that the whole debate is reframed. You know, the debate started out with the leaders saying to Jesus, by what authority are you coming onto our turf and changing the rules? But through the story, Jesus has flipped it to show that really, no, 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 no. You're on God's turf. 
Jesus is saying, you're on my turf. I'm the heir and you're on my turf. What are you doing in my temple? And by telling the story, he's, he's reframed the whole discussion. Uh, look, you guys, this is my place. You're the ones who've abused it and turned it away from God. And I'm here to straighten things out because I'm the son and I'm here to speak for the father. And uh, I thought that's just so interesting because it really does reframe it. Because we come at it the same way, like this is our life and this is my world. And what, do, do I want Jesus or not? No, 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 no. Your life belongs to Jesus already. If he's Lord, then he's Lord. He's Lord whether I accept him or not. He's Lord of America, whether America rejects him or not. He's the Lord, and, and we're just stewards. My money, my time, my family, my body, my everything, I'm just a steward. And so I need to do my life in reverence and honor and delighting in Christ because he's the Lord who owns it all. You know, we have this little phrase in evangelical jargon. You know, evangelicals, we have all these little phrases. They're kind of weird. And one of them is when we talk about a person becoming a Christian, we have this phrase. We say, look, to become a Christian, you need to accept Jesus into your heart. We have this phrase. Accept him into your life. You need to receive Jesus in. And, you know, in some ways that is a helpful image because there's some truth to that. Becoming a Christian does involve a kind of opening up to God and, and the Holy Spirit does come into our life, and that's the Spirit of Christ. So there's truth in it. The, the danger with that language is that it could sort of imply <clears throat> that I'm really the one who's in charge. Like, well, this is my life, and if Jesus works for me, I may let him in, right? Like, like Jesus is kind of this weak, puny guy who's just like, you know, please let me in. You know, I mean, what did Jesus preach? He, he preached the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore... Please let me in. You know, I, I have this lamb. You can pet him, you know, please. No, 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 no. What did he say? He said, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore what? Repent. Ooh. Repent means lay down your arms. Stop resisting the rightful heir. Stop fighting back. Yield your life to the God who made you. Turn, <laughs> turn over your rebellion. There's amnesty today. Today, if you repent, there's amnesty and forgiveness. Repent and turn your life over to Christ and to the God who owns your life already. And believe and you will be saved. <clears throat> That's the message. And if we don't, if we continue to resist and resist, what happens? Verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others, which I think is an allusion to the book of Acts and the, the Gentile mission of the church. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. And that's what we say, may this never be. You know, I don't like this part. That God wants to, God's going to kill people? Ah, no, no, no. God is love, right? God doesn't kill people. God isn't a judge. I don't like to think of a, an angry, hateful God like this. I mean, where's the love in that verse? And the answer is, man, this passage is full of love because he sent so many prophets, right? So many servants have come. Servant after servant after servant. What, what the, the owner should have done is after the first servant got beat up, he should have gone and evicted those people. But instead he sends another and another. He's so patient. Another. 
And so God has put up with us year after year after year. And He puts up with humanity century after century, millennium after millennium. He's so patient with us. Only a God full of love would be that patient with an obstinate world. Only a, a loving God could be as patient as God has been. <laughs> People say, where's Jesus? I thought you said He's coming back. Where is He? God's being patient. He's being loving. He's so incredibly long-suffering with us. And so it is in my life, in your life, God sends us gift after gift. He sends you sunrise after sunrise. And we're driving to work and there's the sunrise. And you know, It's like God's talking to you. It's like, hey, I'm right here. Look what I made. I love you. I'm a good God. And he sends family. Every time I see my children, you know, that's a message from God to me. Am I listening? Every breath I take is a message from God that he's good and he's a gracious God and that he's loving and patient. And still I hold out and I hold out. And so finally God sends the ultimate gift of love, his own son, that that he would send his own son to die for me. I, I can't even comprehend it. What does John 3.16 say? You know it? Will you say it with me? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God so loves the world, He gives His Son. So anybody, I don't care who you are, I don't care how messed up your life has been, I don't care what your track record is, if anybody comes to Jesus, there's amnesty, forgiveness, pardon, eternal life with God. It's so beautiful. But if I will continue to resist that, and despite all that God has done, continue in my unbelief, and adultery, and drunkenness, and vulgarity, and greed, and pride, and cruelty, and lack of concern for others, and selfishness, if my life continues to be a life of rebellion against the heart of God, There comes a day where even God says, that's it. I'm done. And that is the day of judgment that we all face. And so Jesus concludes, verse 17 and 18. He looked directly at them and said, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That's a quote from Psalm 118. Oh, I wish I had another 45 minutes to preach on Psalm 118 and how it relates to this passage is just so good. But anyway, I don't have the time. Verse 18, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. So Jesus is this stone that comes into our lives. What am I going to do with Him? Two choices. Build on the stone. Build on the rock. Make your foundation on Christ. Or fight against it. And everyone who does will be shattered. And so here we are in the season of Lent. This is Lent. This is the 40 days up to Holy Week. And Lent, of course, is a time where Christians uh, historically start to focus on the suffering of Christ. And as part of their preparation, they'll often give something up. They'll try to find things in their life to sacrifice during Lent. Uh, unfortunately, people today pick chocolate. I don't, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, Lent is not like a crash diet, right? It, it's, it, it's, uh, it's a time to prepare my heart for the for the coming of the Lordship of Jesus. And to look into my heart and say, is my heart ready? Am I surrendered to God? And even as a Christian, especially as a Christian, I have to say, "Uh, Jesus, you're Lord, but but you have absolute sway over my life. 
Are there attitudes in my life? Are there behaviors? Are there things? Are there relationships where you need to exert your authority and clean the temple? And so this is a time of year to ask those questions about ourselves. We should always be asking them, but Lent's kind of a focused time. That, you know, Lent is something the Christians invented uh, to, to focus our spirituality and the, the church is uh, used. Um, you know, I was looking at my own life, and I'm like, is, is my heart totally right with God? Do you know one area that, that God's been working on me? And this is going to sound totally trivial, but I'm telling you, for me, it's been a huge issue, uh, is, is I have just a really bad attitude about the weather in New England. <laughs> I mean, we all hate the weather. We hate the winter. I really hate it. And, I, uh, and you know, it's just something where every winter for like seven months, however long winter is, you know, eight, ten months here, I, I just... Um, <laughs> There it is. And, and I, you know, I just complain and I gripe and I, my wife's like, are you going to stop? You know, and I just am so negative. And people say, do you like New England? I say, I love it. I hate the winter. I hate the winter. And, you know, I was, I don't know, I finally convicted about that. I'm like, why, you know, is that right to just be filled up with that kind of negative attitude about something like that for so long? You know, God created winter. And he said, it is good. So I need to figure out why it's good. <laughs> And so I'm praying, Jesus, show me the beauty of your glory in winter. Help me to not despise your creation. And I just, you know, but it's more, it's just my attitude. And, and I need to, I want to be filled with joy all the time. I don't want my attitude to be dictated by the seasons or by my circumstances in life. I want my attitude to be dictated by Christ and the Holy Spirit and delighting in the Lord. So whatever it is. And so that's just, you know, one little kind of hokey area in my life. But for me, it's a, it's a big thing I'm really wrestling with. You can pray for me. I want my whole heart to be filled up with the joy of the Lord no matter what's going on in my life. And I want the same for you. And so what is it in your life that the Lord needs to work on or refine in the season of Lent to extend His Lordship deeper into the territory of your soul? Or maybe you've never come to Christ. What a perfect time during Lent. What did you give up for Lent? I gave up my sin and I embraced Jesus. Oh, that'd be the best. I'll tell you what, it would be the best. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge You as Lord Jesus. We acknowledge You as the King of kings. And we pray that You would hold absolute sway and authority over our attitudes, our actions, our our thoughts. That You would hold absolute sway over our church. That our church would be pleasing to You. That You would extend Your authority on the South Shore by bringing people to Yourself. That, Lord, You would search each of our hearts as we prepare for Holy Week. That You would look into our souls and show us, Lord, those areas where we need to surrender to You so that our whole mind, body, soul, and spirit is filled up with the Holy Ghost. And Lord, we pray that You would um, help those who are searching, who have legitimate questions, who have hurts from the past. Help them to see Your beauty, Jesus. Help them to come, become Christians, not because some preacher made an argument, but because they see the glory of Christ and want to embrace Jesus. Because preachers come and go and churches rise, rise and fall, local churches do, but Jesus is the same. And he is the Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this day and this time and this word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Praise team, would you come and lead us in a closing song?